0: The following message was recorded at Antioch Presbyterian Church, an historic and charter congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America ministering to upstate South Carolina since 1843. Come and visit us at the crossroads of Greenville and Spartanburg counties. Experience our past and be a part of our future. For more information, visit AntiochPCN.com. We've just celebrated the birth of the Presbyterian Church in America, the First Assembly, December 4th. Uh, 1973. At that assembly, there were a group of young men who had been taught by Dr. Smith who spoke out on two issues in particular the cessation of the charismatic gifts and the nature of Presbyterian missions. But there were a number of older men who were offended because these young men, who were just a couple of years into ordained ministry, Uh, would speak in the public assembly. Now, were those young men wrong? Or were those who accused them wrong? Well, the text before us helps us uh, answer that question and then apply it in a much more practical way. Because we begin this morning uh, the speeches of Elihu, Job chapters 32 to 37. It's the third division. The first two chapters we can take as the background and prologue. We get historical events of what God did in his own providence and the gathering of Job's friends. And then in chapters 3 through 31, we have the section of dialogues that take place between Job and his three friends, his counselors, who come for the purpose of encouraging him, although they end up condemning him for invented sins because in their theology, uh, you don't suffer like that unless God is angry with you. It was really the first health, wealth, and prosperity theology that God uh, will bless materially uh, the righteous and will curse uh, physically and circumstantially the wicked. Uh, And so as the dialogue goes on, they keep repeating, as we've seen, the same thing, but Job is growing in faith. But he comes to a point now, as we see, that he's finished. He sits down, and this comes now to the section of Elihu. Elihu, whom I am convinced, in fact, is a prophet of Jehovah. Now, chapter 32 gives us the introduction to Elihu and the, uh, the ethos, the apology, apologetic for what he has to say Uh, because he comes onto the scene from a completely different direction with a completely different set of revelatory facts than what the friends had, and in one sense even what Job had, because you remember that Job also had bought into uh, initially this idea. This is why he couldn't understand why a righteous God was dealing with him uh, as he was. Now, before we get into the apologetic, just who, who was Elihu? Uh, what is the role of this section of scripture? Better question, I'm gonna in a minute deal with who Elihu was. Well, there are four approaches to what we have in 32 to 38, 37. And the first is fra- from the critics, who say that this is extraneous material to actually what was there, and some later editor or redactor added this material inserted it here between Job's uh, final speech and God's speech. Well, uh, there's no evidence for that. There's no manuscript evidence for that. It's contrary to our concept of inspiration. What we have here is exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted to be here. And it is part of God's holy and inspired word here in this place. But then amongst those who do believe in inspiration and accept that this was a fact part of the book of Job? There are three approaches. There's a group of, of commentators, interpreters that believe that uh, well, this is simply the same O same O. And for these next six chapters, the longest speech that we have uh, in the book from men, um, he's simply reiterating what the others had said. Well, it doesn't take much spiritual common sense to recognize that that's preposterous. It, it would. Why would the Holy Spirit actually give more um, testimony to error after it's already been batted back and forth for these previous chapters? Um, that contradicts the very wisdom of the Spirit as he gives us God's message in Scripture. There's a class of people that have moved beyond that, and they said, well, yes, Elahu is superior to the three, And he does have new biblical insights, but he still has error. Uh, And, well, again, why would the Spirit spend this many chapters on a speech that is mixed weed and chaff, when there is no um, real advance on truth because it's hindered by error? Which brings me to what many of the older commentators uh, believed, and a few modern, that Elihu, in fact, um, was a prophet of God. And as he himself will claim, as we'll see, working through his speeches, he speaks by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what we have here now is, well, in a sense, the mediator for whom Job has prayed. You remember those prayers. Someone to stand between him and God. And God now sends an answer to that prayer. This holy man. And his message, uh, in a nutshell, is that God's afflictions are not retributive. They're disciplinary. Uh, They're sanctifying. Uh, They're for good and loving purposes. In fact, you could also say that he's the prophet of God's majesty and glory. In fact, many then have speculated, because he is a prophet of God, that he is the author of, of the book of Job itself. And there's surely... Uh, Sound speculation on that basis. I do think, as I've said early on, the writer had to be an eyewitness because he's recording for us speeches in great detail. But whether he wrote the book or not, he surely now speaks by inspiration. So what we have here in chapter 32 is uh, the introduction of Elihu and the new voice. And this morning, the apologetic for uh, the new voice, we see that God uh, will have a new voice added when the old voice has not advanced the truth or has taught error. God will add a new voice when the old voices have not taught the truth or, in fact, have taught error. So, outline is very simple. We're going to look at the apologetic for... Uh, The new voice, the new voice, and then the new message. And The new voice is revealed to us in verses 1 through 5. And this is simply the Spirit's explanation to us who Elihu is, what he's doing now at this moment. So it's the Spirit of Christ who introduces us here to Elihu in these first five verses. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger burned against his three friends because they found no answer. And yet it condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. Well, we have the transition. At the end of chapter 31, Job sits down. He's finished. He's had these two lengthy soliloquies, so to speak, or monologues, uh, where he has come to the glorious climax of the defense of his own life and walk uh, in the presence of God with all these witnesses able to testify to what he said. And then we see in verse 1 of chapter 32 that the three friends also, in a sense, sat down. They no longer tried to answer Job. The pretense was he was righteous in his own eyes. The real problem was that he answered all of their specious accusations. He wasn't self-righteous. He simply uh, would not consent to the condemnations they were bringing against him and had silenced them. And they had sat down. Now it's in this context that the Holy Spirit introduces us to the most remarkable man. Uh, First... uh, who he was, and we understand something of the remarkableness of this man by what the Holy Spirit tells us. He gives us great details. This is the only person outside of Job, I mean, outside of God in the book of Job about which we know anything. Uh, we know Job was a godly man, and he was from the land of Uz. That's it. No genealogy, nothing. Uh, we know the three friends were wise men from the east. Uh, we can figure from their names, kind of their lineage, but we know nothing about them either, except they were wise men from the east. But look what the Holy Spirit tells us twice now about this man, Elihu. He says that um, he was the son of Barachel the Buzzite of the family of Ram. Let's start with the family of Ram. Can't be sure, but this seems to be that he has come from Aram, from Syria, Mesopotamia. Now what is significant about that? That area not only was the cradle of civilization, it was the cradle of a Revelation. It was the place where the Shemite descendants of Noah and Shem had settled. The place from which God would bring out Abram. Uh, this was the center of God's remaining activity between the flood and the covenant with Abraham. Even later, it was known to be the place of Revelation because where did uh, Balak send when he needed a seer from God? He sent to this area of the country. And so he comes from the cradle of Revelation. The other men came from the cradle of wisdom, and they were wise men. Uh, They were the wisest men in the East. But there's a wisdom greater than the wisdom of men, even the wisest of men. It's the wisdom of God. And so God now brings this man from that region of the world, which in a sense is quite remarkable about all these men, at some expense and sacrifice, how each one, the other three as well, and here Elihu, when they learned early on of, of the attacks on Job, traveled to be with him. And it also teaches us the, the nature of friendship, and that uh, these men knew each other before. Now, there have been some connections between them. You know, Eliphaz refers to Job's father as a friend of his. And Solomon reminds us not to neglect the friends of our fathers. But there's even more here about piety now. So, Elihu's grandfather obviously was a godly man, because he named his son Barakel which means blessed of God. Now, if you know anything about patriarchal history, you learn it from the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, how uh, God has related names and his work in the lives of people. It was a clear testimony uh, throughout that period of time. And then Elihu's father names him Elihu. My God is he. Now remember the context. So although the Shemites are here, In this area, line of revelation, we know that idolatry had begun to develop and that God had called Abraham out of that context to protect him. But here is a family there because uh, he named him Elihu, that my God is he to assert the truth of the true God. And he was a nephew of Abraham. And so we're told that he was then of Buzz and we read, In Genesis 22, 21, that um, Buzz was the uh, son of Nahor, the nephew of Abraham. So we have this Semitic line, one that apparently from the names avoided the idolatry. So we have a pure line of revelation that's taking place here from uh, uh, Noah to Shem to these Semites that are living in this area of Aram. And so this is further why I think this man truly was a prophet. <laughs> and there's a clear testimony here of consistent biblical revelation and piety. So that's a little bit about who he is. And it's important, you know, because the Spirit actually repeats it then again in verse 6. We also note here, as the Spirit introduces us to Elihu, how he, how he, how he handled himself, what was, what was going on in him. Uh, why did he step into the breach at this point? Well, we read that uh, his anger burned, in verse 2, against Job his anger burned, because he justified himself before God, and his anger burned against his three friends, because they had found no answer, yet had condemned Job. He had two concerns. He was concerned with what Job himself had said. Now. We'll see from his speeches when he says that uh, Job justified himself before God. Not that Job thought he was sinless, but Job often, as we've noted, would assert his case in a way that would cast a shadow of doubt on the integrity or the probity or, or the faithfulness or the love of God. And that'll be the issue that Elihu will address with Job. And then his anger burned against the three friends, because they kept condemning Job, and yet they had no reason to condemn Job. But what do we do with this expression, his anger burned? And notice the emphasis on it. Uh, verse 2, the anger of Elihu, uh, the end of verse 2, burned against Job. Verse 3, he anger burned. Verse 3. His anger burned against the three friends uh, because um, they had no answer. And in verse 5, there was no answer in the mouth of the three men. His anger burned. Was this a, a young zealot who had kind of lost control of himself at this point? Although his cause was good, um, why this emphasis that his anger burned? Well, here the Spirit's teaching us the importance righteous anger and zeal for the truth of God. Uh, Wrong anger is when it has to do with us or our feelings or our situations and we get angry with people which in effect is angry with God because His providence is behind all of these things. But as we read in John chapter 2 there is a righteous anger. We know that Jesus was angry with the Pharisees as they sought to trap Him. And we read in John 2 that he, he was so angry, he cleansed the temple and fulfilled the prophecy that he was consumed by zeal of God for the house of the Lord. Elihu had a righteous indignation. He had a burning passion for the glory of God and the well-being of God's revelation and God's people. And he was rightly angry. I think these are words that make people today really uncomfortable. As a Christian culture, we have grown increasingly tolerant about the wrong things. We're like the proverbial frog that's in the water, and the hotter the water gets, the more comfortable the frog is being destroyed. We need a sense of righteous indignation. A sense of the spirit in the imprecatory psalms. Not because of anything that's been done to us individually or, or in our families, but because of what is being done against God's honor and, and God's law and, and God's church and, and the persecution of God's children and, and the perversion of our culture and the destruction of children in our own country and the sex trafficking that should make us angry with a righteous anger under control. But yes, to pray and sing in precatory psalms and to plead with God to show his strong arm and come forth. And don't be uncomfortable then with such prayers. Again, modern reformed teachers say we don't have to sing in precatory psalms. Why are they there? Because there is a righteous anger. Now Paul says, be angry and sin not. We must vent that anger in an appropriate manner and we must never become uh, uncontrollably passionate in the expression of that anger, but there's a place for it. And obviously you see the Spirit's emphasis here in Elihu. So answers the question who he was, answers the question how he um, conducted himself, and then answers the question on why he now speaks. And that's the third part of the introduction. In verse four, Elihu had waited to speak to Job, because they were years older than he. And when he saw there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. Another very important biblical principle Uh, taught to us in the fifth commandment, boys and girls. We are to honor not just our parents. We are to honor all those whom God's placed over us as superiors. Solomon teaches us that we are to honor the aged and that a hoary head is the sign of wisdom. And it is a, a, a fact of God's work, even in nature, that often wisdom can come with experience. But particularly in sanctification, spiritually, godly wisdom will come with experience that is mixed and interpreted by Scripture. And this was Elihu's attitude. He knew that these were godly men. He knew they were men known for wisdom. And so he sits. He listens. Anger's beginning to burn. He sees the error in what they're saying. But he's given them opportunity, you see, to express themselves because of due deference. And we must keep in mind the need of due deference and always to treat our elders, even in the church, when we would disagree with them with due deference. It's important, and again, seminarians, and kind of hints at my introductory illustration, it's best for young men in the ministry to be quiet in presbytery for a few years unless they have something to say that's not been said or unless some type of error has been allowed to continue and not be opposed. But uh, it is a good thing to wait on the elderly, or the wise. But then you see, they had nothing to say. The anger burned. It's time now for uh, a new voice with a new message. That's what we have then in verses 6 through 14. A new voice speaks now a new message. We consider three things in these uh, verses. Uh, The caution of the new voice. Uh, we'll think about the um, character or qualification of the new voice, and before that, the challenge of the new voice, and then the character or qualification. So the, the caution, Elihu, well aware of the importance of being seen, not heard, <laughs> um, when he finally speaks, under a compulsion, he says, first, with an excuse we call it ethos in preaching and in logic, that he's paving a way now for his stepping onto the stage. He's trying to win uh, an, an assent because he recognizes he's young. He recognizes he's going to contradict now what's been said by the wise. And he can be accused of arrogance because of the claims that he makes for what he has to say. So in a sense, he is trying to win the audience. It's a very important truth of not just rhetoric, but of preaching. Uh, And you'll see how Paul does that in his speeches in in the book of Acts, where he begins with respect and genuine appreciation for the men before whom he stood. And when we find ourselves in a, a situation where we're not known or perhaps even under suspicion, it's a good thing to begin there. But for men in the ministry, the most important ethos that there is is your godliness. In the midst of your people, as they know of your godliness, they then will be willing to listen to you. And that is the most important aspect of ethos in today's ministry. So he seeks, in a sense, to win the audience over, he begins humbly, I am young in years, and you're old. Therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think, or really my knowledge. I thought age should speak. And increased years should teach wisdom. So he's owning the fact that uh, what he's doing is culturally unacceptable. And he acknowledges that. He says, I give all due deference to these men. I will show them all respect. That is what I am responsible uh, to do. And recognizing that often, as I said, wisdom comes with the increase of years. He says age should speak. It's literally days, uh, increased years, many years. Just the idea that the Spirit works through time. It's very important. Those of us who are older need to look to our own hearts. Are we growing in wisdom? Because the Spirit is teaching us. Which brings us then to what we see here. Um, And that is that you can say, but it is a spirit in man. Or there is a spirit in man. That's the soul. Because we're image bearers of God. We have souls that then, the second half, the breath of the Almighty can give understanding. It's because we have souls in the image of God, the breath of the Almighty, here the Spirit of God, will give understanding. Will give understanding to the elderly, or those who have been long days in the faith, but it's not just tied to that. Because it comes from the Holy Spirit, the abundant in years, may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. And so he shows that, um, yes, this is the normal way the Spirit works, and that men, women, grow in wisdom as they grow in sanctification, but not always as they ought to. And moreover, it's not age. It's the illumination of the Holy Spirit from revelation that brings wisdom. Again, we've noted many times that these men didn't have any written word of God. Elihu would have possessed the oral revelation from Adam through Noah through Shem through um, Barakel and, and Buzz. Um, but what he did have, with whatever revisions were given, would only be effective in his life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, You and I, have the entire Word of God. So on the one hand, that is a great advantage, obviously, that we have over the men of the patriarchal period. But if we don't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we're worse off than Elihu. As I prayed, the Bible remains a dead book, words upon a page, until the Spirit of Christ comes and gives us understanding that we may behold wonderful things out of the law of God. And so, my friends, as you approach your daily Bible study and reading, as you lead your families in reading and prayer, as we come here uh, for the preaching of the Word of God, which is the most important means of grace, we must do so in a regular prayerful dependence upon the Spirit of God To make the word become alive to us in our understanding and then working it out in our lives. And that's why our prayer of illumination is not some mere liturgical formality. And I hope that you are praying with Pastor Groff and me and others as we pray that prayer. For it is the genuine desire, a recognition that we must have illumination and we must have Holy Spirit anointing if the preaching is going to profit any, And so he's, he's cautious, but then he challenges them. After having expressed why he has waited, he then says in verse 10, So I say, listen to me. I too will tell what I think. Or again, I will tell my knowledge. So he's, he's explained, I, I've, we'll come back to this, I've been patient, I've listened. Uh, but wisdom 's not just automatically tied into uh, age it 's of the Holy Spirit. What he says now, I have the holy Spirit that 's how I talk about it. He can be accused of arrogance. I have the Holy Spirit, so we challenge them, listen to me now what I have to say. So we see caution and we see challenge, but notice again his character or qualifications, even as he handles himself. three things uh, first his humility. Behold, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Now, probably pretty long, early on in the process, Elihu recognized that uh, Job's self-defense, as Calvin would say, was a, had a good foundation, a poor argument. Uh, and the friends simply had um, a bad cause, but You know, they argued it quite vehemently. And I'm sure early on that anger began to burn. Uh, But you see that the young man exercised humility and patience. He didn't jump in. I think the words give us the uh, idea that uh, I listened to your reasonings while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. The speeches were not as we read them, it's just that uh, Job would speak and then Eliphaz would perhaps ponder a moment before he responded. Job would respond by thinking first. And so there was this pattern, and he didn't jump in, though, you see. He didn't take uh, a momentary silence to insert himself because he's coming with this commitment uh, to honor wisdom, to be humble and patient, then, as he would speak. And to listen. To listen. And we've said this many times already in the series. We must listen in counseling. We must listen to our children when they're trying to explain something to us about what's happened. And we must listen when we get involved. Any kind of polemics. Make sure that you can uh, repeat accurately what the other person has said. I read once... Um, uh, a note uh, about a st- uh, by a student that had Dabney studying philosophy. And he said, uh, By the time that Dr. Dabney finished presenting this particular philosophical system, you were convinced it was true and he believed it. Then he dismantled it. He would say, Have I heard you correctly? Is this what you're saying? And that's really what Elihu doing here as he's pondering. What they're doing while they're pondering, he's not jumping in, he's sure. And we'll see this in his speeches. He knows exactly every line of argument and accusation against God. We see as well a great zeal for truth. He said, "I paid verse 12, I paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job. Not one of you who answered his words. Do not say I have found, we have found wisdom. God will rout him, not man. He said, you know, you, you guys are hiding behind a, a facade. Uh, you've spoken no truth, and then you simply appeal to God. That's your wisdom. Well, God will take care of Job. God will vindicate us. God will uh, show that we're right. And he said, that's not true. You've not spoken truth, nor have you spoken truth about God. So he had a great concern about truth. And then very importantly, the third qualification or characteristic that uh, Elihu had was what I'm going to call neutrality. He was not partial. As we say in the South, he didn't have a dog in the fight. Notice how he expresses that in verse 14. He's not arranged his words against me, talking about Job, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. So he really addresses both of them here. He said, you know, I'm not trying to answer Job because Job hasn't been arguing with me. And... Uh, I'm going to show you that your words are not true, not because I'm taking anybody's side in this except God's. And that's, again, how we must conduct ourselves. We must always be concerned about God's glory, God's truth, God's honor, not get caught up in things because, um, well, we think it's our reputation or we want to impress with our reasoning or our argumentation. No. We must be concerned only about one cause. You know, Job had already accused him of partiality. And now that's what Elihu says as well. One cause must be the cause, one motivation, the motivation behind anything that we enter into in terms of any polemic or any counseling or any teaching or preaching. And it must be God's glory and God's truth. And so in this prologue now to Elihu's speech, we have an apologetic for a new voice with a new answer, a new message. Carefully paving the way. Coming in, introduced first by the Holy Spirit, which I think is quite remarkable. We don't get that introduction, do we? For anybody else. The Spirit meticulously tells us who this man was. And then the way he conducted himself and his, his righteous anger. And then his opening remarks, which were to pave the way, to smooth it, not by flattery, he doesn't flatter anybody, does he? But with honesty about himself and about his cause and his interest, and uh, that's important. So we come back to those young men, December 4th, 1973. Uh, What was going on? Well, their mentor, Dr. Smith, had been elected clerk of the General Assembly, and because he was a man of such integrity. He would never speak publicly to an issue before the court. But he had taught those young men many things that were not yet understood by the elders who began our denomination, not in any way to uh, dishonor them. They were blessed by God to get out of seminary and, and believe the Bible is the word of God and salvation is through Christ, and they were perfectly sincere. But under Dr. Smith's mentorship, The young men had come to know a lot of things. Two were being addressed at that assembly that nobody was speaking from a a, a more reformed side, and that was a cessation of the uh, charismatic gifts and what Presbyterian missions ought to look like. So uh, were those men wrong in that case, although young to speak? No, I think not. As long as they spoke with humility, uh, deference to their elders, uh, what they did was not wrong. They didn't always do it well, but it was not wrong. There will need to be new voices, which brings us to our own day. How do we respond then to new voices? You remember the disciples were jealous for Jesus. They said, there's some guys over in the other town, and they're casting out demons in your name. Should we stop them? No, he says, because if they are for us, they can't be against us. We don't stifle new Voices. In those same days, the beginning of our denomination, there was a very blessed Baptist preacher. The same people that were upset with the young voices were upset with a new voice from an older, experienced man, preaching experimentally, preaching to the heart. And they tried to hinder his ministry and to keep him from ministering even in the midst of our uh, growing Presbyterian conservative movement. They responded wrongly to a new voice. But, you know, we can do the same thing. A few years ago, the book uh, Young, Restless, and Reformed talked about what God was doing and all kinds of backgrounds. And in the, the last 20 years, there's been all these new voices for at least the basics of a, a soteriological Calvinism. And we need to recognize that God, in His sovereignty, raised up those new voices. And as long as they spoke truth, then we would revel in them and thank God for them. And then we would pray they would come to a greater grasp of truth. But don't shut off someone because, well, they haven't come from our camp, or I've never heard of them before, or actually, they come out of a kind of a weird background. No. Uh, thank God, in His providence, wherever He brings the voice. But then, of course, the great voice is not a new voice. It is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, the incarnate Son of God who is the Word of God, is the personification of God's wisdom, is the treasure chest of wisdom. And we revel in the reality that we, for whom He has uh, died and by whose work we have been saved, now are indwelt by a Spirit, and He through his word, is causing us to grow in wisdom. Praise God for the Savior. Praise him for the things that you're learning. And then seek more, as we sang in Psalm 105. God promises us that if we seek him, he will give us strength. Perhaps, though you're here today and the Bible to you is a closed book, you don't understand it. You can understand the. Uh, A commentary like the Living Bible or something like that, that people try to tell you what it means. But the Bible is to you a dead book. Now you should already gather from what I've said. If it's dead to you, why is it dead to you? Because the Spirit of Christ is yet to speak to you. You must first be born again. If you're going to understand God in his word. As you're born again, as you trust in Christ, then you'll seek him in his word. and He will teach you. So, if you sit here today and you're absolutely, the Bible to you is a dead book and you have no understanding about it, it's a very clear indication that you've yet to be converted. And may the Spirit of Christ even now begin to work in your heart to show you that your blindness is not because the Bible's oblique. No, it's because you don't yet have eyes to see. Is it the Son's fault if a blind man can't see it? No, it's the fault of the person. Is it God's fault if you don't understand His Word? No your own blindness and dead heart. And so seek God in the way that he should be sought. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word as you teach us here uh, of uh, the path of wisdom and truth, of your providence of raising up new voices at times. They must be heard at the message, Lord, that we have even here in this book of Job. We pray that your spirit indeed will bless it to us now. For Christ's sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Antioch Presbyterian Church. For more information about Antioch, visit us at our website at antiochpca.com.